Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, welcome to another episode of Coindesk's Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. These days, there are real benefits to living on a COVID-free subtropical island ringed by soft pink sandy beaches 600 miles off the coast of North Carolina, far from all the troubles that have beset the United States in 2020. Economically, however, Bermuda has long contended with a challenge common to many small island economies. Its population of 60,000 simply isn't big enough and is too far away from other markets to motivate investors and innovators to set up shop there. Now, under the leadership of Premier David Burt, the territory is looking to turn that disadvantage into an advantage. Specifically, by offering up the island as a kind of living lab to test out new forms of digital money and related services. Burt's government is inviting cryptocurrency companies to provide stablecoin services and related innovations to Bermudians and to use a constructive regulatory regime within the local economy to iteratively develop a digital currency standard. To facilitate that effort, the government is deliberately playing an enabling catalytic role. It allows local merchants to pay their taxes in approved, fully reserved stablecoins that are backed one-to-one with US dollars. Bermudians, in theory, now have a much better reason to accept stablecoins for payment. The strategy, which plans to use this so-called sandbox environment to develop a regulatory model that the outside world can trust, draws upon Bermuda's experience developing the regulations for risk management, which have turned it into one of the most important insurance hubs in the world. Today, we are extremely lucky to have Premier Burt join us to discuss the work that his team of fintech experts are doing to turn Bermuda into a world leader in digital currency development. You could say that Premier Burt is one of those government leaders that technology developers dream of. For one, he comes from a tech background himself, having been a specialist in information systems. Just as importantly, he has shown a willingness to try new ideas, to enable experimentation, and to be creative within the confines of the territory's firm compliance standards. It sounds like Bermudians are happy to let him keep doing that. He and his Progressive Labour Party won a resounding re-election victory earlier this month. The top item in his campaign platform was a pledge to create the Bermuda National Digital Bank, in which all Bermudians would hold shares. I'm looking forward to hearing from Pemria Bird about that and other projects underway. But before we do that, let's welcome my co-host, Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. I think you and I both been involved with the folks from Bermuda for a while, and we were both invited to participate in a recent summit there, remotely, of course, as part of a panel discussion, separate panels. And I think we both probably got the same pitch. Dennis Pitcher, appropriate name in this case, who's the fintech lead in Bermuda, finished up my panel describing what it was currently like in Bermuda. No COVID, warm weather, and for certain fee, a relatively inexpensive work from Bermuda visa. And I'm sitting here in the midst of the third wave and just going, please don't torture me with this. Let's just call it what it is. It sounds like paradise. It does sound like paradise. I don't even think they have to pitch that hard. <laughs> it sounds like paradise, but to me, it felt like torture because I, I can't at this stage. And I'm yeah. racking my brain to figure out how I can do this. I mean, I know it. There is a dream life in which we are together in person in Bermuda recording this because of the no case count of COVID on the island currently. It's relatively normal life. People are, from what I hear, at bars. That was the part of the pitch made to me. People are out. People are drinking wanna, on the I, beach. Okay. All right, let's just drop it. <laughs> drop it. Drop it. Drop it. We're not going to talk about this at all. Oh, so Michael. This is off oh. limits in the conversation with the Premier. I, I'm telling you. We are not going to talk <laughs> no about bragging it. is what we're saying. Yeah. We're <laughs> no no, no gloating. About, about, no gloating about circumstances, even though the Premier obviously had a lot to do with the reason that those circumstances exist. I suppose you can claim some credit. We'll let him do that. But all right, fair enough. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting about this episode is that it follows from last week's episode. And, and in that one, 
we talked a bit about the Bank Secrecy Act and KYC and, and so forth. And we talked in that session about this problem of de-risking, how the heavy compliance burdens that have increasingly been imposed on banks and financial institutions in the US and elsewhere have led them to make decisions like, you know what, it's just not worth the risk going into a jurisdiction that isn't big enough for me to participate in, so I'm not going to. And, and that, of course, creates problems for people in those jurisdictions. The price of doing finance, the cost of sending payments and the like becomes higher. And I think that Bermuda, along with lots of other islands in the Caribbean as well, and other parts of the, you know, the developing world, have truly been victims of all this. So it's a natural fit, if you like, for them to explore technological alternatives that might address some of these concerns. Agreed. I mean, in addition to the context of things like the financial system being uh, imbalanced, shall we say, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, there's also just the opportunity for more tech-forward jurisdictions to play a really meaningful and, and possibly outsized role in the world economy. And that's something that from the very beginning of my role here at the forum, we've been spotlighting. We've been saying, look, the innovation certainly around things like digital currencies in 2017, 2018, were not happening in the big giant markets apart from China. They were really happening in smaller, more agile economies like Bermuda, like certain countries in ASEAN, Eastern Caribbean Central Bank. Some of these places were engaging in these really productive experiments that I think showed the world the benefit of taking this technology, blockchain technology, very seriously. And Bermuda is right at the top of the list. Welcome, Premier Bert. Thank you very much, uh, Michael, and good day to you and good day to Sheila. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. As you probably heard in our conversation, you know, we're, we're going to bar you from talking about how <laughs> delightfully enticing it would be to be in Bermuda right now. I do want to give you what we in Australia call a Dorothy Dixer. That is a question that's a softball. Talk a little bit about, you know, your own sort of background and, and skills. You are the youngest ever leader of Bermuda. You were elected at the age of 38. The background is an IT specialist, which is a very interesting background to this time in history. And the fact that you were, or are rather, a licensed private pilot. You told me some stories once about some of the things you did in an airplane. It sounds like, <laughs> sounds like you're up for an adventure, which I think is not, not the case with many other politicians. And it's sort of probably quite appropriate if you've dived into the world of blockchains and cryptocurrencies. So tell me a little bit about that background, what it's meant for your ability to run this territory. Well, truth be told, I'm far less adventurous now than I used to be. I guess that is the effects of being the leader of a government for over three years. So without question, that's always hard. And I don't know if my wife will let me fly planes because <laughs> <laughs> I was a private pilot. So that means that, you know, I was only flying single engine aircraft. She would consider that reasonably dangerous as would uh, many others. But it was weird because I went to boarding school in Florida. So, you know, in other places, weekend trips would be going to the mall and our weekend trips would be renting planes and flying places. You know, it was just a different kind of childhood, I would say, that I had, but it was fun. And actually, one of my friends who was in school with me was reelected and is now the Minister of Transport for the country. So, you know, we keep joking about how we're going to get back in the planes and go flying. So hopefully that will happen. But on the side of, I guess you could say, um, IT, my background is in systems development, project management specifically, and I like to fancy myself as a IT project manager. And the one thing I would say is that the skills are very applicable and very transferable when dealing with the management of a government. Two skills, which I think are particularly useful. I used to specialize in doing requirements analysis and being able to deconstruct problems. And I think that's something that's critical when you're dealing with issues, especially when faced with crises or crises like a, a global pandemic. But also the project management aspect of my training, I found it to be incredibly beneficial in my first term and hopefully will also be beneficial as I move forward into my second term. Well, I think we can say that from the landslide victory that you just achieved, uh, the citizens of Bermuda certainly appreciate your peculiar combination of skills. Uh, but for me, the last time that I saw you in person, that we saw each other in person, was in Davos in 2019. And I have to tell the story. I can only describe it as a masterclass in chivalry, because as I recall, on an icy Davos, I was eight and a half months pregnant. 
and you did what I could only describe as setting a pick for a shuttle. So I, a pregnant lady could get on the shuttle ahead of all of these esteemed dignitaries who were like waiting their turn. And then Premier, you were just like not having it. Nice. Pregnant lady on the shuttle, here we go. And I am nice. incredibly grateful, as is my almost now two-year-old daughter. <laughs> so thanks for that. You're welcome. <laughs> that was a very fun time, Sheila. I remember that. <laughs> it was, it was funny. The other day, uh, something was up on, I forget what it was, on some social media. And it just clicked to a speech that I had given that exact same night where we were up somehow in the mountain. And I think it was a GBBC <laughs> right. event. And my wife was looking at this. She was like, well, that's what you do in the World Economic Forum. I'm like, yes. <laughs> See, it's not that exciting. It's actually far more boring than you would think. <laughs> well, you were in Davos in part because you were speaking at the forum's event and you were giving, along with Elizabeth Rossiello, who we're going to have to have on, Michael, because we keep mentioning her, you were delivering to Davos participants basically an object lesson in blockchain and why it was important for governments to be paying attention to it. And so by January of 2019, you were already paying close attention to this technology that many in the world really thought of as kind of a get-rich-quick scam or were not taking that seriously. But you had already made significant inroads. And I'm very curious to understand why. How did you come to get interested in crypto and in blockchain technology? And what led you to believe, rightfully so, that this could be something of interest to Bermuda? Well, Bermuda, when I was elected in 2017, was a country that was looking for growth. And we, as a country, have not actually fully recovered from the global financial crisis of 2008. So we find ourselves in a place where we're mired with low economic growth and others. And so when I came in, the search was certainly to find areas and avenues of growth. And how do you set a strategy that in the long term can capitalize on what the strengths that Bermuda has? It's weird because Bermuda's strength is actually regulation. That's the reason why we are one of the world's centers for insurance. And people say that, oh, that's because of the tax benefits, et cetera. Well, a lot of our companies here actually elect to be U.S. taxpayers. They prefer to be regulated by a very strong and sound regulator. So a few weeks into being in office, there was an event that was held here by a company called Hub Culture. And the person who uh, leads that was a gentleman by the name of Stan Stoniger. And Stan was telling us, oh, there are certain things I didn't have any knowledge about Bitcoin or blockchain or Ethereum or all these other things. And he was basically explaining and saying that this is an opportunity that he believed could apply to Bermuda. And it's something that we should investigate. So we came back the next month. We talked about it some more. And in 2017, late 2017, I want to say in about October, November, we formed a task force. And the task force was to look at the blockchain technology. So we had a legal and regulatory side and we had a business development side to see how could we possibly adopt our laws to make it work. And so we did adopt our laws. And in 2018, we introduced a suite of laws that came into place. There was a funny story from the World Economic Forum where we actually went there to, I want to say that it was a reception for that. I think that was the night I met Michael Casey as well. Yeah. Yes, it was actually. It was, it was, <laughs> it was at the chalet. And I remember there was this big tuna and i it's think right. it was yeah. <laughs> I, I learned that you're one failing yes. you have an aversion to sushi <laughs> no 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 no. i i love sushi i just can't see you, you know, can't look the, at it you can't look thank at you it. i can't look at the the carcass of the animal of which i'm consuming right, okay. <laughs> and i remember that it was that evening we had a drink or two and i think that it was the minister who was responsible for fintech at the time minister keynes and he stood up and said you know we're building the blockchain future in bermuda and if you want to be a part of it, you will fly to Bermuda next week. And lo and behold, people started sending us messages that they were coming. And so we managed to get very lucky and we designed um, something which we think has served us very well. And two years later, because our Digital Asset Business Act came into force in September of 2018, and two years later, we are seeing the fruits of that labor where the network effects are beginning to pick up. Instead of the you know flashy announcements and all the rest, we're just grinding on and making sure we try to attract more companies here, but also figure out how we can attract more innovators here to take advantage of our small size. Because as you recognize in your introduction, size is a benefit, but it also is a challenge. So I want to dive into what you're going to be doing with some of those stablecoin solutions and so forth. But first of all, I was really intrigued to see that pledge within your campaign platform 
to build this Bermuda National Digital Bank. It seems like you now have a mandate to do that. Tell us about it. How will it work? Bermudians will have their own stake in it, I believe. Yes, a very happy mandate, I must say. The other day, someone was uh, questioning my approach, and I said, this was the very first thing that was mentioned in the Progressive Labor Party platform. It has been fully endorsed by the voters, and we are pressing ahead with this project. And I say that because, as you would recognize, and this, I think, applies for lots of various small jurisdictions, where you had mentioned the issues of de-risking and others. We really, really have a challenge. And in Bermuda, which has never been a banking jurisdiction, our major banks serve our international business clients, and they do not have the risk appetite to take on other types of business, which may be in emerging markets. And for this, this in Bermuda is a tourism jurisdiction. Gaming is one of them. We are about to pass laws dealing with cannabis, which is something else that our banks cannot touch because they interact with uh, the United wow. States. Um, and also on the, the areas of fintech. And so the view in the National Digital Bank was not necessarily in some ways to compete against our existing banks, but it was also in a way to build a technology-focused bank from the ground up that would support these new industries while basically giving broad ownership to the country as a whole. Because one of the mandates inside of our election manifesto was to build a nation of owners. And the one thing about fintech, about cryptocurrencies, about the financialization and tokenization of assets, is it allows you to expand and broaden ownership in a lot more efficient way than we were able to do in the past. So we can give everyone an ownership share, and we feel that it's something that's important so people feel invested in this bank. Yeah, this is absolutely fascinating. And I think that what's going to be interesting, I'm curious if you have a point of view on this, yet is stable coins that are backed by fiat, stable coins that are, are maybe less stable or more volatile, you know, things like pure crypto that have much more volatility. Do you have a point of view on the general benefit of accepting any of those? Now, I know with your taxes, you're accepting payment in USDC for taxes. And I, I'd love to get a little bit into that and, and the decision there and how that's actually working and, and how it's operating. But I'm curious to get your perspective on the wide array of different options of digital currencies and how you see those playing out when it comes to the National Digital Bank. I'm a long-winded politician, so I'm going to try my best to give short answers. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm always known for telling stories. And one of the stories which I learned from military school was the Japanese skipped the age of sail. And they went straight from uh, rowing ships, triremes, straight to steamships. They never had sailboats. And I happen to think that Bermuda will skip the age of central bank digital currencies. I actually think we'll do that. And that's because I think that we are trying to innovate with our currency standard on the next phase. Because it's really difficult to, I guess I would say, tie yourself into a specific protocol. And what if you invest all of your money and energy and efforts in it and within, because of how quickly this space is evolving, within five years, it's obsolete. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're open for innovators. So in the issuance of USCC and the view around that, it was that this is something that is established, something that there are persons who will go ahead and innovate on top of that. And we are happy to accept anything that has been licensed under the Bermuda Monitor Authority. And we welcome companies here. We got Bittrex, who was licensed in Bermuda. Bittrex is examining issuing a Bermuda dollar stablecoin on the Stellar Network. We have a company here, XBTO, who is issuing a Bermuda dollar stablecoin using the Liquid Network, I think. And so from our perspective, we are trying to be that place of innovation. So we don't want to tie ourselves to anything in particular, because at the end of the day, the Bermuda dollar itself is a token. It's just not a actual real digital token. It's a token of US dollars, and it's backed one-to-one -one by US currency. So in our view, we can take that and we can go ahead and allow private sector players to begin to innovate on what does program of money look like? How can we use it? And we're actually broadening our test bed or our innovation hub in Bermuda to lower the, I would say, barriers for entry for smaller participants to come into our jurisdiction and to be able to experiment in a very constrained way so they can graduate to uh, higher licensing processes. Elaborate a bit on how this plays out as an international strategy in terms of essentially, I suppose, what is a kind of an export market, right? I mean, you did this with insurance, you developed a regulatory framework and a model, and now you've become 
this really important global hub for catastrophe insurance. How do you see it playing out here? Like if you get to this point where you feel like you've really nailed what a modern post-CBDC stablecoin framework looks like, how does that then help you on the international stage? Where do you sort of see that going? The one benefit and the one objective for the government of Bermuda is to have a long-term economic stability and the creation of jobs here. And from our perspective, as the world is changing and we have these uh, small island states, as we refer to it, we have a lot of external challenges that we are dealing with, whether they are more intense regulatory scrutiny just because we're islands. Uh, there's a, certainly a little bit of, I would say, historical racism that's tied into that, where you have the big powers in the EU and others that are you know, looking in a negative fashion towards how we've managed to do things in our small island states. But I think what is important is that you nailed it, Michael. It's about doing what we do best with insurance and having a well respected regulatory environment where people can innovate and bring things to market very quickly. That's what has worked with us in insurance. And I think that will work very well for us when it comes to digital assets about making sure. So we brought in, for instance, a few years ago, derivatives clarity to our Digital Asset Business Act. We're going to be doing additional changes when the House of Assembly goes in in November to make sure we expand the classes of licenses. And we're looking forward to continue to serve as this place of innovation to welcome the innovators of the world here to Bermuda. One thing we talked about on the show is that there's really this complex web of regulation internationally that are not consistent. They're very hard to parse by anyone, let alone people who aren't experts. That's in part because there is not clarity on you know, how tokens are regulated or which, even which agency, in some cases like the United States, have jurisdiction over tokens, things like that. But I'm curious specifically with the UK. So the FCA just banned crypto options trading. Do things like that or kind of China, the Chinese approach to some of this and the massive exporting that China is also doing of soon to be digital yuan, but of other kinds of things that China is engaging in activities there. How does Bermuda think about that web of regulation? You're certainly experts in crafting effective regulation, but how do you position yourself uh, against that really complicated web? We position it by making sure that we present a simple and clear to understand regulatory environment. And I think that our benefit in this, unlike other jurisdictions who may want to, is that we have an incredibly well-regarded internationally financial services regulator. And the Bermuda Monetary Authority is recognized as one of the top regulators in the world. Bermuda has a population of 65,000 people. There are only two jurisdictions on the planet that enjoy regulatory equivalents in risk matters with the United States and the European Union. And those two countries are Switzerland and Bermuda. So our standard is incredibly high. And we have been able to succeed where others have failed by making sure that we provide that clarity. And so from that perspective, we think that we'll be able to be successful. We don't worry about what the regulations are in the United Kingdom. We worry about what our regulations are here. And we craft them because we know that because of the standing of our regulator, it will meet the standard and people trust the Bermuda Monetary Authority for looking at these issues and making sure that we put forward, I would say, clear regulation that meets the standard. We implemented a custody standard in our Digital Asset Business Act, which was praised by persons in the United States when they testified in Congress. So they have looked and they've seen what it is that we're doing and they know that what we're doing is sound. Premier, just to clarify one point, obviously you say that you don't need to worry about what policy positions the UK itself is taking, but as a UK territory, does there need to be coordination with authorities in the United Kingdom? Not really. Um, the one, our constitution is a very modern constitution. And so there are certain matters that deal with currency and banking that do need the approval of the United Kingdom, but broadly, when it talks about our regulatory environment and things that happen with the Bermuda Monetary Authority, no, we do not need to uh, seek the permission of the United Kingdom for those matters. So we basically want ahead and we do have different regulatory environments. And it would be silly uh, for me to say that we don't actually compete. And especially given now that the United Kingdom is not part of the European Union. I mean, Bermuda has regulatory equivalents with the EU when it comes to mm. risk matters. That's something that the UK does not currently have. Interesting, interesting. I'd like to just, if you can, tell us a little bit about the day-to-day -day issues of money on the island. You're an advanced economy, you've got this strong regulatory environment, and yet 
no Venmo, no PayPal, that sort of stuff. What does this mean for the day-to-day experiences of Bermudians in terms of moving money internally and externally? It is incredibly frustrating for my small entrepreneurs and for others to be able to be in a place like Bermuda, which is regarded as one of the wealthiest places on the planet, where we have some of the highest internet penetration rates in the world. One of the few countries where we can say we have the ability to run fiber to every single home, directly into every single home, even homes on the islands in our sound. But we do not have the ability to have access to early fintech tools such as PayPal and Venmo and others. It is incredibly challenging. But that's, I would say, the drawback of being such a small jurisdiction that with 65,000 persons, we don't appeal to a PayPal or Venmo to worry about making sure that they can work inside of our jurisdiction. And so that's the reason why I think that when we're looking at what we're trying to do in the space of crypto, it is even more exciting. And what's interesting also, Michael, is that before we never thought that de-risking affected us, but there are persons who are having access or difficulty in access to banking, which was something that in Bermuda was unheard of 10 years ago. And it's that double-edged sword of international regulation, international pressure. So Bermuda, as a well-regarded international financial center, has to meet uh, the international criteria of our anti-money laundering regime and our mutual evaluation report, which happens every few years. Bermuda's results were some of the best in the world. But when you tighten and making sure that you have effective enforcement of anti-money laundering regime, you also then start disenfranchising people from the financial system these are persons who may have been incarcerated, who may have gotten out, who may have you know, tried to change their lives, who have done a good job of rehabilitation. But just because of the way that anti-money laundering is set up, they then lose their access to the financial system. You find persons who will be small business owners who, because the increased compliance requirements, just cannot go ahead and get a merchant account. And they find it difficult or a long and encumbering process. The issues about setting up bank accounts, et cetera. These are things that actually create friction inside of the local economy. And our view is that with the high fees and other things, that we believe that if we can spur innovation using fintech and using crypto, that we can get ourselves to a place where we have lower barriers to entry, lower fees, more efficient transfer, and allow our domestic economy to have more velocity of money internally. And programmable money is also helpful for governments. Because we went through COVID and having to go ahead and issue payments to individuals who were not able to work, we found it as a very cumbersome process. And that's the reason why we were piloting these various digital stimulus tokens so that we can speed up the process of getting that money to persons, but also with programmable money, setting parameters on how that money is spent, making sure that money is spent internally inside the economy versus someone getting a stimulus check from government and going on Amazon.com and buying something overseas, which doesn't really help our economy. Certainly, I think of de-risking as a form of redlining. It's more devious in a way because it's less visible to broad swaths of the population, but the effects are no less devastating to individuals or institutions that are faced with the consequences of this kind of activity by the banking system. Switching gears a bit, you know, one thing that we're paying a lot of attention to and really excited about in the tokenization space is, well, DeFi, decentralized finance, but also just this idea of improved access to capital. There are ways using you know, tokens and swaps and things like that, that we actually could enable global capital market creation in brand new ways. So entrepreneurs in a place like Bermuda could actually have much easier access to capital, whether that's venture or other kinds of capital, or even just crowdfunding from all over the world. Is this something that's on your roadmap or that you're thinking about? Absolutely. And I think that that's something when we talk about matters dealing with the National Digital Bank and others, when you're building something from the ground up based upon technology, it then gives you the capability to do things. And so what we believe is the National Digital Bank is going to be complementary to our innovation ecosystem. We believe that it will be complementary to banks that want to come here to participate in our financial system because they will have something that is backed by the government that can help and to assist them. But when we look at the way that Square has been able to expand micro lending and others to uh, small businesses and entrepreneurs to 
reduce the demographic gap where, you know, increase loans to women-owned businesses, increase loans to black-owned businesses and others. That is the power of fintech. And we certainly want to be able to demonstrate that here. So Sheila, you are exactly right. That when you have more and more persons inside of your ecosystem, you then, and you're actually changing because we're really discussing the future of money. And I am firmly of the belief that the way that we look at money and value and the storage of value today will be completely different in 10 years. We will be able to enable that access for our citizens. And we want to be the leading edge of that. Because you look at Bermudians who are now paying with historically low interest rates. We still have Bermudians that are paying 7 and 8% rates on mortgages, where they're looking at their friends in the United States that are getting 3% rates. And it's very, very, very difficult. One of the things I think is going to, to make a number of our listeners happy to hear is the way in which Bermuda is promoting a PPP approach, right? The private-public partnership. Rather than building your own CBDC, you're leapfrogging, as you say, and inviting the private sector in to come and experiment within a protocol that you're approving. Can you talk a little bit about what you had to do to get people on board with that? I mean, so often the resistance to allowing all this innovation comes from bureaucrats who say, no, this is the way we do things. We're not going to do that. It has to be done by the central bank or whomever. Did you get pushback in the beginnings? How have you brought along the community to support this approach? (laughs) Thank you, Michael. That's a great question. And I would say that the way that you come to these things is you hire well. I am uh, thankful to have Dennis Pitcher, who is my chief fintech advisor, who's working with me along with these issues. And it was a little bit easier for us as well, because from the Bermuda perspective, you know, the, the normal thing is to, you know, say, oh, go ahead, issue a CBDC, go ahead and do that. But Bermuda, we don't actually have a central bank. <laughs> and so it's a little bit more difficult because at the basis of it, CBDC is giving the broad range of citizens access to central bank liabilities. And because we don't actually have a central bank, it becomes a little bit difficult. So at the very outset, I was having a challenge, and this was in 2018, selling the idea to the Monetary Authority and to the Board of the Monetary Authority. And this was me as Premier and Minister of Finance. But, you know, I have to rely on the advice of far more seasoned persons in monetary policy than I. So then the question then turns to, if you want to accomplish the same objective, how do you go about the situation recognizing your own individual constraints? And that was where we came to the view that if you have something that you're building towards, as we call currency standard, you don't have to do it yourself. You can go ahead and invite players into an ecosystem of which you're building so that they can go ahead and develop and build that innovation themselves, which I think is the right strategic play for the country. And we do believe that it is going to yield benefits. And people might be more likely to actually trust digital money that is coming from a cashless society that is not being uh, led by the government and the um, normal privacy fears that may come from that. Whereas you can choose where you're going to get your money from, but as long as it's able to be freely interchanged with other types of storage of value, I think that's the future where we're going. So we look at, remember, if we know way back in the day and us tech people can go way back of how difficult it was, you know, sending electronic communications and emails. And when we came up to SMTP, how much easier that was, we can go back to the days of when not everyone had individual messaging services and how you can send SMSs between networks and stuff. And now it's as seamless. In the future, the transferring of money, even on a more broad scale than it is now, must be as simple as, you know, sending an email or taking a picture. And I think that's where we are certainly going. And we want to play a part in that future. I don't want to, and I think I uh, may have alluded to this earlier, put a huge amount of investment on trying to build out some type of government-sponsored infrastructure where we have vendor lock-in and et cetera, and then we're left behind and we have to then go ahead and innovate and spend a whole lot of money the next time around. If we let the private sector innovate from our shores as they have an insurance, I think that will benefit the country. I think you're describing a world that is what got so many of us into the space, this idea that there are fewer and fewer good reasons why there should be so much friction in the payment space when we've witnessed what can happen, both good and bad, you know, with reducing friction in the communication space. And so let's shift there a little bit, because there has been, of course, good and bad that's resulted from the decrease in friction in the communication space. Certainly messages can travel much faster now than they ever could before. Messages that before would have kind of been, you know, self-censored by a community out of uh, marginalized in a way, now have equal footing with uh, other messages that 
may or may not be as, as legitimate or valid. And in the money space, certainly things can go wrong. And we've seen some recent examples of this in Make the Media Headlines, you know, BitMEX or other examples here. How do you think about those risks, which certainly exist in this space? And how are you future-proofing against some of these things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of risks in this space. And as with nascent industries, you will find that not everyone is a good actor. But I think that the way that we protect against that is our really, really strong uh, regulatory environment. And so we've done that. So where you've seen, you know, recent challenges, I think the other day it was OKX and other things. We don't have those challenges with Bermuda regulated entities because we have a very, I would say, high regulatory requirements that companies are required to meet. And so where it is the issue of how the custody is handled to make sure that master keys can't be lost and other things uh, from our perspective, we believe that we've solved all those problems and we continue to make sure that we are staying on top of the regulatory challenges. But we can look even, I think it was last year, maybe earlier this year, when I think the OECD put out a book or a paper about how to properly regulate the digital asset world. And our regulation had met those standards prior to that even coming out. You look at when the U.S. is still grappling to figure out what it is that they're doing. Uh, but when in 2019, when the SEC was looking at um, how you could uh, deal with custody, uh, SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce, you know, basically said the U.S. can learn from what Bermuda is doing. We believe that it's the best way to protect against it is to ensure that you only deal with regulated and licensed entities. That's what we want to do in Bermuda. I encourage any of my citizens who they come and say, oh, I want to go ahead and get involved with digital assets. I say, well, make sure you look at the licensed companies here and make sure you find a way to participate in there because you will know that your money and or your assets or your keys or all the wonderful ways in which we want to describe it is safe. That's certainly a sound and robust and, and thorough approach to systemic risk. What about individual risk? The idea that somebody might pretend to be my mom and I accidentally wound up sending, you know, a bunch of money over to her. And one of the things that is happening in the space, decentralized web and other things, is this idea of self-sovereign identity, digital identity. And of course, digital identity, you know, there's a level of anonymity there. And so the ability to check, and even in, you know, Venmo, for example, you've got these kind of protocols where you enter a phone number, you enter some identifier that can kind of ensure that the person receiving the funds on the other end is the person you intend to send them to. A lot of that doesn't work as well in the new world that we're talking about today. How does digital identity and innovation happening in that space intersect with the world you're describing, where you're addressing the systemic risk via engagement only with licensed and regulated institutions, but still individuals may have the ability to engage in fraud, not the hacking kind, although that's part of this, but in other kinds of fraud? That's a great question. In my view, there are certain things that you, <laughs> as much as regulators and other persons try their hardest to prevent, it's just difficult to do so. And we've seen that. But I think when talking about the identity space itself, it's a similar approach of which we're taking. And I know that our monetary authority put out a pre-consultation paper the other day speaking about a digital identity issuance act where we would license digital identity issuers. I think we look at it in the same way. And we have to look at it in the same way that the market can actually demonstrate to us who are the best players in this space. And the government doesn't need to be the be-all and end-all of issuance of identity because the government is not the be-all and end-all of the issuance identity in the analog space. So it shouldn't be that way in the digital space, in our view. And so if we allow and say these are certain standards that you can have to verify a person's identity, we think that that is a better way to go forward and that can actually allow and spur innovation. So if you have companies that have figured out how to solve for those problems, those companies can be more successful. I'm reminded of the axiom that, you know, no lock can keep out a truly motivated thief, you know, <laughs> but it doesn't mean you don't put locks in place, right? It doesn't mean you don't try. <laughs> Absolutely. One thing that I say, it's kind of funny when people ask me about these things, I tell them, I was like, I'm really not that good at understanding a lot of how this stuff works, but I do understand the basic premises. Thank you very much, Michael Casey. I still talk about our conversation at Davos all the time, but I understand <laughs> the basic premise of what is being accomplished. And it is so amazingly powerful. The store of infinitesimal pieces of value, 
the way in which that you can so easily and quickly program money, distribute a wide range of assets. The conversations which we were having during the election was, you know, when businesses come into Bermuda, if they are required, you know, people are paid taxes and all the rest. What if they were just required to give one-tenth of one percent of their equity to every single person in the country that is a registered Bermudian and different things like that so persons can build up a portfolio of assets? It's so powerful, all of the things in which you can do, and we are trying to pioneer that future here. So I am like overjoyed, I would say, for a new mandate, and I am adopting the stance of trying to get rid of as much of the extraneous stuff so we can really focus on this innovation. Because at a time when the global economy is going to have increasing difficulty over the next few months, as we continue to grapple with the fallout of the coronavirus pandemic, I think it is an ideal time and space for persons to innovate from a relatively COVID-free society as we have here in Bermuda. <laughs> with the pink sandy beaches, yes. Well, you know, we do have active cases. Uh, we do, but they're all imported. They're not the best transmission. I mean, we make sure people get tested before they come and we test them at the border. We test them again. And so we have uh, imported cases only. But as long as we keep them captured and make sure they're not spreading, we're in good shape. But we think that that's an advantage for persons to want to come to a place where they can have the ability to innovate. And as you had mentioned, the work from a Bermuda certificate, you pay $263 and you can live here for a year. So let's run with COVID because to me it has been, and I think it's pretty clear to everybody, in fact, it is going to be a paradigm shift. But I don't think enough people quite appreciate how profound this is. And it's not just that it's going to, it's, it's, it's exposed the idea of working from home and it's had people worried about their public health systems and so forth. It's also that the result from this in terms of the policymakers' response within the financial sphere has been to really throw caution to the wind when it comes to just printing massive amounts of money. And, and I'm not even going to argue that that wasn't necessary. It arguably was. But it's really raising some serious questions about the future of the global financial system. And it's also making people think about how do we manage for resilience in the world? Because this pandemic, it doesn't care about borders. It is truly global. It is by definition a decentralized problem, and therefore it needs we need decentralized governance to deal with that. So as you go through this process, looking with one eye at the bright opportunities you see for Bermuda to be innovative and explore these things, and I suppose another eye at the state of the world wondering where it's going to go, how do you see it all coming together? Do you see an opportunity for Bermuda to set an example for how the world can adjust to a world that is going to be very different? Uh, thanks, Mike. To answer your question, yes, I do see an opportunity. And I think that we've actually done a reasonably good job of this, but it goes back to understanding the problem and coming up with solutions that are unique in order to address the problem. Bermuda, unlike lots of other countries in our region, has a different tourism season. Our peak tourism season is actually May through September. Whereas islands to our south, their peak tourism season is December, January, February. Theirs is the winter, ours is the summer. And so it was this thing that with the pandemic was hitting, we did not want to throw away our entire peak tourism season. So the view was, how can we actually make this work? If you tell people, oh, you can come to Bermuda, but you just have to, you know, be in quarantine for 14 days, there's not going to be a whole lot of people that are going to get on a plane. So we had to figure out another way. And so we spent a lot of time going back and forth, and we figured out a way of requiring pretests, requiring tests on arrival, and then having this period of monitoring where people got their tests on day three, it was first, day seven, and day 14. We now moved it to day four, day eight, and day 14. But in saying that, we came up with a solution that worked for us. Now, unfortunately, that's going to be very difficult to administer in the United Kingdom, where you might have a whole lot more visitors than the people that are coming to Bermuda. But it is an example of a way that you can look at what the standards are, adjust it for what works for you, and then go ahead and try and implement it. And people, I will tell the truth, were very, very worried when we started. And I was a little bit nervous as well. But you cannot completely and totally shut down your economies. And so you have to have this smart way of doing things. We got fortunate. We had a doctor who was working at Oxford who was very skilled in molecular science. And so we were able to get her back in the country and we were able to ramp up our testing regime. And now Bermuda is the sixth most tested country in the world where we have done over, I think, 80,000 COVID tests approaching right now. And so we're just continuing to stay on top of it through widespread testing that you can go to 
grocery stores in the country uh, get tested. We're making sure that we test all our nursing homes on a regular basis, making sure that we test our teachers. We're going back to school. We had an election. We were testing our poll workers just to make sure that there was minimal spread of the virus. And we just continue to test. So we've done, I would say, since we ramped up, we've probably done about 50,000 tests since the big ramp up. And we've probably found maybe about 30 positives during that time. But we still just continue to test and to test and to test and to maintain our standards so that our economy can remain open. If I may, I think if we had more leaders who are thinking the way you're thinking, both about pandemic response, but also just about embracing innovation the way that you have during your tenure and you're going to continue to do with a mandate you've been given, uh, we'd be in a different place. And I'm curious just to, to gaze into a crystal ball for us here. And so as we're seeing more fractionalization in society, we're seeing the rise of populism, we're seeing cultural trends that are, to say the least, uh, disturbing. And we're seeing kind of this anti-globalization movement that I really do think is gaining some traction in certain sectors, including sectors that are quite powerful in society. How do you see some of this playing out over the next five to 10 years? And what role do you think technology could play to help with some of this? And specifically, how do you think countries that have maybe not as much political will or dominance in the global political sphere, how do you see all of that? happening? I will be brutally honest with your listeners. And I will say that I am slightly fearful, I would say, for what may occur over the next uh, few years. Because I think that you are correct in when you speak about the anti-globalization. And we can see the fact that because of technology and the way in which technology has happened, there is this massive concentration of wealth in a smaller hands of persons. And I think that over time, any time that we've seen that in history, we know that that just does not end well. And so I think it's important that we recognize uh, those challenges before they actually happen. And so from a governance perspective, the way that I think that technology and decentralization can play a role is that leaders and politicians should not be afraid of trying to devolve more power to their citizens, trying to make sure they share that role inside of decision making to the extent that is necessary and possible. And I think that in societies that can do that will spare themselves the upheaval of which you may see in other jurisdictions where central governments want to hold on to as much power as possible. Because as persons have more information, where money becomes something that is less controlled by central governments and more the store of value can be done in ways that do not necessarily rely on governments, there will certainly be a bigger challenge. And I think that it's important that as leaders, we recognize that. How does Bermuda play inside of that? I think that Bermuda can almost serve if there is going to be an upheaval in the exact same way as there is a pandemic that is going around, can serve as a safe haven, can serve as a place that welcomes persons who want to be a part of our society and want to participate and want to be a part of a society that is aiming to be fair, that is aiming to be better, that is aiming to be innovative and wants to serve as an example on how you can have shared decision-making, have shared goals, have views, and to make sure that you build a fairer society where you don't have this yawning gap between the rich and the poor, where you can use the nature of tokenization, the nature of data to say that we can make sure that the persons who own the lease get the benefits so they can have that hand up. And I think that's important. I think that's what the future is going to hold. So I am, while nervous, I'm incredibly excited about the opportunities that technology and crypto and what the future and what this actually represents. I'm excited about what it can actually bring to society if and only if leaders are willing to let go of a little bit of control to make sure that their citizens, who are the ones that they are ultimately accountable for, can play more of a role inside of decision making. Okay, that is wow. a, that that is a that's a great <laughs> no. You you knew this was going to be the last question, didn't you? You know that I was going to close this out. You're like, I have to do my mic drop moment, didn't you? You knew this was coming. And let me say that's the advertisement to Major Bermuda. More than the beaches, <laughs> more than the open, you know, restaurants. It's that vision. I was thinking, oh God, you started out. You said, I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to be frank. I have to be honest. This is going to be tough. And I was like, oh no, we're going to have to go out on a gloomer. And then you took us back. You took us. <laughs> 
devolving more power to citizens. All right, man. I'm, I'm with you. I'm moving to Bermuda. You, you had to do a full podcast to convince us, didn't you, that we're going to move there. Uh, all right. Where do I sign? <laughs> you can, and Michael Casey, as I always say, you are welcome to come to Bermuda at any time. I know. I keep on telling my well, family. We've got to plan that. We've I keep on telling them. We're coming in. We're going we're gonna to hang with the Premier of Bermuda. Look, look, I mean, this was an absolute pleasure, Premier Bert. It is a... Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, truly. Well, you know the high regard that I have for the both of you. So when you sent this message, I said, well, absolutely, I will certainly participate. And as I will tell you, Michael, in the future, Michael Casey, to me, will always be the person who gave me my aha crypto moment. <laughs> and, I, and I tell the story and, and I now look for it in other people when I start explaining crypto to them. And all of a sudden they go like, they go, oh, and I was like, yes, you, you got it. <laughs> That's exactly. I hope it all goes well. I'm absolutely confident that it does, but I hope that people don't eventually point to me and say it's all his fault. But, yeah, like you know. that Australian guy. You've got to take risks. Well, I mean, they won't yeah, point yeah. at you. They'll they'll point at I'll Sheila Ward for the person That's exactly who's, right. I, I you know, <laughs> exactly who's running the World Economic Forum and all the blockchain stuff and all the rest. They'll say, oh, it's it's, it's Sheila over there. No, but yeah. it's, a, it's like, an absolute pleasure to talk to you all. And I mean, I think that the future is really exciting and I, I'm looking forward to the work of which you continue to do and to continue to enlighten people in the world. I think that we're going to see a new world emerge from this current challenge. And I think that it's going to certainly be one that is going to be a brighter one. Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Premier David Burt. It was a great pleasure. Sheila, as always, thank you for your time and your lucid comments and questions. Thank you all listeners. Uh, This has been another episode of Coindesk's Money Reimagined. We will be back next week. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, and special guest Premier David Burt. Our theme song is Shepard, and this episode was produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Today's show was edited by Rob Mitchell with assistance from Adam. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Money Reimagined, plus more insightful shows on the Coindesk Report's subscriber feed.